0: Gunner. And I've been called many things. Gun enthusiast, monster hunter, doomsday prepper. I reject all these labels. What I am is a survivalist. I've scoured the dirt and dust of Nevada and Mexico, putting my life on the line to hunt super-sized subterranean, man-eating predators called graboids. Join me as I enter into and beneath the sands of hell. Welcome to Now Playing's Tremors Retrospective Series. This is important, you know. This is probably the biggest zoological discovery of the century. These creatures are absolutely unprecedented. Hosted by Arnie. I'm a masterpiece of self-destruction. Stuart. Well, I'm blessed with a sunny disposition. Most people seem to like it. And Jacob. You guys do what you do best. Find something simple and complicated. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Makes my skin crawl. Listener discretion is advised. And remember, life and survival
1: starts here. Today, we're discussing
2: Tremors. Starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Michael Gross, Reba McIntyre. Directed by Ron Underwood. This is the now-playing co-host that was government-built to be a big surprise for the Russians, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the host that will serve you bologna and beans for breakfast, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I had for breakfast this morning, Jacob. It's supposed to be eggs. <laughs> and we drunk the worm at the bottom of the bottle, and it was a 30-foot
3: worm. Really? trimmers. Tremors is a classic! This single film that came out in theaters and we never got a sequel. Classic! You sound like Kevin
2: Bacon, Stuart, because while making this film, Kevin Bacon screamed to his pregnant wife, I can't believe I'm doing a movie about underground worms. And you're like, I can't believe I'm reviewing a movie about underground worms.
1: <laughs> oh, it's Tuesday. I know I review B-movie junk. That's, that's my job. But I, it's, again, usually the series have to have some kind of cultural significance. I don't think this first movie was a hit. I thought it bombed.
3: Oh, it was a hit on tape.
2: This is right there with Star Wars among franchises that I never thought we'd do. We've been asked to do this more times than I can count. I can't
3: tell if it was one person asking a million times or a million people asking once... Because of now playing, I know this is a franchise. I always thought this was just one movie that came out until the demand started coming. I'm like, what? There's more than one? But we only did Children of the Corn and
2: Mangler because we were doing a big Stephen King series that had a lot of theatrical tie-ins. When we did some of the other series that just devolved into direct-to-video dreck, Leprechaun, leprechaun return of the living dead not so much return of the living dead but it a rave to the grave necropolis yeah well i'm looking at our download numbers (laughs) leprechaun not so great rave to the grave at least we had three installments out of five that mattered there here yeah one theatrical movie and so when people have said would you do tremors i was always like Well, when they do a theatrical reboot, because I feel like one is destined for this franchise. It's remembered. They reboot everything.
3: I don't think till Michael Gross is dead. He's going to show up in every one of these films. He has made some pact with the devil. And like they they're like, we need to get rid of the curse of Michael Gross before we can get back in theaters. I
2: never thought we'd do this. But then again, I also never thought Corona would happen and we'd end up doing, what, eight movies in a row about viruses? We need movies to review.
1: Yes, it just so happens that before pandemic shut down all filming... Trimmer 7 got made, and so if we were ever going to do it at a time when we're struggling to, to see new movies, I guess this is the time for it. And again, just a surprise to me that there were seven segments of this worm. I just didn't know it was that long.
2: I knew it kept coming, if that matters. I mean, I saw the original one on videotape in 1990, It was in theaters for a blip. I didn't go to theaters to see it. I remember seeing trailers. Nobody did.
3: Oh, no, no, no. I saw this in theaters. My dad took me and my siblings. It was during the week. It was weird. I don't know what was going on with my mom and my dad at that point. But he's like, hey, I'm taking the kids to go see a movie middle of the week on a school night. (laughs) But we went and saw Tremors. Like, we had just moved into a new home. We didn't even have cable because my mom didn't want TV. So I didn't even know what this movie was. My dad's like, oh, it's just a funny movie about Giant Orange let's go because he would keep up on films but no i saw this one in theaters i was there i guess remade up for most of the people that saw it
1: i looked at the box office the thing opened in fifth place behind born on the fourth of july tango and cash admittedly the best movie ever made
3: i mean that's the best movie ever so it's not gonna beat that
1: War of the Roses, Internal Affairs, all of which had been out for weeks. All of those films had been running and running. This was the debut, number five at three million, and it crawled to fifteen million. That's a flop, right? That is a stink bomb. We don't never touch this again. But what happened was it became one of the
2: most rented films of nineteen ninety. It was probably one of the very first movies that did okay in theaters. Universal said they basically broke even even theatrically after you took in international grosses as well, not Michael grosses, international grosses, but on video, this thing was huge. And you hear that with certain movies They did okay in theaters, but they look at how does the home media do to see if it really warrants a sequel? Well, they do that a lot now and it did take four years before they really seriously looked at doing a sequel, but it's just kept chugging along. I mean, you talk about seven movies A TV series has happened. They almost did another TV series very recently. This franchise has a cult following that will not give it up.
1: And again, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about quality. That's what we're here to do. Maybe I'll like all seven of these movies. I'm just saying it's weird to start off with a bomb and keep going on. But I think you're right. The drive-in movie format has always been perfect for B-movies. And Blockbuster became the drive-in of the 90s. You know, drive-ins went away and now people could snuggle on their couch and rent these things. And yeah, it's perfect entertainment for that. I mean, this is the blob for 1990 or Jaws. I mean, if you look at the poster, the teeth that are coming up to the surface, I mean, all of that. I think that was part of the problem. Well, some of the advertising would signal this was Jaws, this was a scary horror movie, and then some of the TV spots made it look like Hee Haw or Blazing Saddles. You didn't really know who it was meant to entertain, and with Reba McIntyre, came out in January, so, you know, that says wait for video. Yeah, I just think that in the end, it was difficult for them to know what they had And I was in the throes of my horror obsession at that time. I didn't go see it because I wanted horror, horror. I didn't want horror comedy. To me, it looked like it was going to be too silly. And that whole era of the 80s horror comedy. It had been a long time since Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters 2, nobody was chomping at the bit for more of that. Beetlejuice? Yeah, a couple years beyond that as well. Again, you guys like that movie better than I do. Freddie was pretty much horror comedy by this point. (laughs) And going away the next year. Again, I think my point is it came out at the wrong time. This movie either needed to come out three years earlier or just a couple years beyond it when more people understood Camp Sensibility. So did you never see this? Have you not seen it, Stuart? Oh, no. I ended up, like Arnie, renting it, you know, because that's what you did. You just go to the video store and there it is. And yeah, I was delighted. Felt like it was as good as... Killer Clowns from Outer Space or Arachnophobia. It was just, you know, it was a drive-in movie. It was a B picture. It was a cast that I expected nothing from. It was a movie that looked stupid. And at every turn, I was delighted. I felt like, oh, it's funny. It's exciting. I really liked it. And I watched it once and then never, ever thought about it again until this week. You didn't expect something great from Fred Ward. What is he famous for? I don't know. That's that's the joke. Even Kevin Bacon, he was five years beyond Footloose at this point. Yeah, I saw this
2: because of Kevin Bacon, to be honest. I knew Footloose and had been a really big fan of Footloose. So I'd watched She's Having a Baby, which came out the year before this. I come to know he was in that first Friday the 13th. And by the time I saw Tremors, I was seeing trailers for Flatliners. So, I kind of thought of Kevin Bacon as, other than she's having a baby, a horror guy. I didn't realize that this was a career decline for him. He recently did an interview and said that Footloose isn't where his career took off. Footloose is where his career started going down the toilet, because after Footloose, it was nothing but flops, including She's Having a Baby, End of the Line, Quicksilver, and yes, Tremors.
1: Yeah, I, he has always worked better as a character actor, right? Briefly, they thought that maybe he could join the Brat Pack, that he could be a hunk. Then he ended up being a little too scrawny, a little too weird, just quirky. I mean, he became a parlor game, right? You connected him to other actors. He was in ensembles, he showed up in things, but he just wasn't star material. and. If he's the star of a movie like Tremors, again, I think that lessens your expectations for what that movie's gonna do. Fred Ward was a face I was familiar with. Really, from what? I
3: still don't know what he's from.
1: You know, he did a lot of like television stuff that I'd seen. And I had seen the right stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think of him as the gruff guy that would pop swing shift and he would just pop up and stuff. But not known quantities, any of these people. And again, with
3: a silly premise. Uh, Michael Gross, a very known quantity. Television, TV sitcoms. His whole character is an inside joke, I think. You got to know family ties. I
2: watched all the making of what little they had on the Blu-ray for this, and the director, Ron Underwood, reached out and said, Kevin Bacon, we want you. Fred Ward, we want you. Everybody else, including Michael Gross, You want this role? Uh, why don't you come in and read? Cause you're Mr. Keaton. They made Victor Wong
3: read for this. You just give Victor Wong (laughs) this role.
1: Yeah, I did hunt down the original script and kind of thumb through it. I didn't read it. I read it like a Hollywood producer reads a script. You thumb through a few pages just to see. I wanted to see if it was designed. As a star vehicle for an actor, or if it, some of the supporting characters had more to do. And yeah, Wong's character was actually supposed to be Vietnamese. He was one of the few characters that was different. But by and large, nope. I think these guys always had the idea that it was about two slacker handymen that would take on Jaws in the desert. And we have to thank for this entire premise, Short Circuit. What? I don't remember worms
3: in Short Circuit.
2: No, but... Brett Maddock and S.S. Wilson were budding screenwriters. Maddox had done a couple of shorts, but Wilson had nothing. But they sold Short Circuit, and it became a hit, and people were at their door. What else have you got? And
1: Batteries not included? Ghost Dad? <laughs> yeah, they had probably not a lot of great stuff. Heart and Souls? No, no none of that is great. They did do Wild Wild West, the Will Smith one. Not helping their case. Yeah, there was 30 writers on that. I'm not going to blame when it gets Project too big like that. Yes, they didn't save that movie. I'll put it that way. So, yes, high concept screenwriters, the kind that Hollywood loves. We have this idea and it's a funny little premise and we'll get an actor and they'll do bits, you know, like, but maybe not great, strong character work in the scripts. No,
2: they had this great idea for a movie. They wanted to title Landshark. Then they found out about the SNL skit.
1: <laughs> yeah. I knew it had to be a Jaws fan film. Like, it just feels that. Again, with the poster, with so many of the setups, you can just feel them emulating Spielberg.
2: But did you guys watch the trailer for this? Because, so help
1: me God, I've never heard Gail
2: Ann Hurd's name in such lights. They're like, from Gail Ann Hurd. Who? producer of Terminator, Aliens, and the Abyss. It's like they're saying this is from James Cameron. Like the first time I watched the trailer, I thought they were saying this was a James Cameron film.
1: Yeah, Gail Ann is lucky enough to have produced all of Cameron's early big successes, but I think the only other thing she had on her resume was alienation. She struggled when James wasn't making the movie. I don't think she was packing him in. But you Market what you got, and I guess that just tells you they didn't have a lot of confidence in this. Again, January release, Big Worms and Kevin Bacon. Worms and Bacon sounds like a
2: weird breakfast, but they didn't expect this to be a January release. They were kind of looking at a fall release for this, maybe loosely tied to Halloween. But once they saw the movie, they realized the R rating they'd approved probably wasn't good. They apparently dropped a lot of F-bombs in here. Mother Humper was not the original line, (laughs) so they had to get the people back in, do some ADR work, some
3: re-editing, and they could only get it out by January. So this started as an R-rated film? Yes. Some of this stuff is pretty gruesome, at least for PG-13 today.
1: And reading the script, I felt like even more so. Like, it starts with the slaughter. It doesn't start... With a guy peeing off a cliff. It starts with, guy opens barn door and all the animals are just gory masses of flesh on the ground. They filmed that opening. Oh, okay. The whole
2: drunk in the electrical tower, that opening was filmed introducing him and Fred. And you don't know exactly what he was seeing, but you know he was scared by something. And then the next time we see him, he's in the electrical tower. Which kind of makes more
1: sense than just finding a dead guy in an
2: electrical tower that we've never met.
1: Yeah, again, that was why I wanted to read it. I was like, was there more about these other people? A little. We can talk about it. But by and large, yeah, I think the movie that they conceived is the movie they made. And maybe Ron Underwood made it a little bit more humorous, but it didn't read as funny as these scenes are going to play. The writers worked with Underwood on the script, and
2: they were on set during the production. I mean, this was the three of them working together, and the writers did always have this, what they call a throwback to the 50s. I know what they mean by monster movies of the 50s. They wanted a throwback film. Yeah,
3: it's them with giant ants.
1: Again, the format was different. I mean, the 50s, kids were going to the drive-in and seeing stuff that they maybe wouldn't have paid hard money to see, but it meant that they could have their girl curl up next to them in their car, and that was the point. Whereas here, yeah, they got to get them into a movie theater. And didn't. And so they rented it from Blockbuster, and that's <laughs> how it worked. But let's get into the story. Arnie, give them the plot. We'll find out about Tremors. Welcome to Perfection,
2: Nevada a forgotten town by the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Perfection sports a population of 14 people, but that number's dropping rapidly. Several locals are dying mysteriously. One is found decapitated, giving the residents a brief thought that a serial killer might be on the loose. Local handymen Valentine McKee, played by Kevin Bacon, and Earl Bassett, played by Fred Ward, are fleeing town, finally moving on to greener pastures. But the path out of town is blocked, literally. The only road out of town was blocked by a rock slide. The two workers blame some construction that was going on in the area, but the construction workers are actually dead, victims of a 30-foot subterranean worm beast that has started feeding on local residents. These worms are blind and hunt by sound, including the vibration of movements above ground, so they try to eat people, cars, and anything else that makes noise or causes vibration. Soon, Val and Earl find themselves surrounded by three of these monsters in downtown perfection, along with a handful of local residents, and Rhonda LeBeck, a graduate student who was conducting seismology tests in perfection. Several residents die, but help comes in the form of two survivalist townspeople, Burt Gummer, played by Michael Gross, and his wife Heather, played by Reba McIntyre. These two are armed to the hilt and killed one worm already with an elephant gun. But the creatures that the locals now call Graboids are smart and learn to stay underground where bullets can't hit them. Before the last two Graboids bring down every building in perfection, Val comes up with a plan for escape. They can load the people into a trailer and pull it with a 10-ton track loader. The worms couldn't flip this heavy vehicle, so the survivors think themselves safe but the smart worms dig a trench and the loader falls in. Their survivors find an outcropping of rock that the worms can't penetrate, but they're trapped in the desert. Using Bert's homemade pipe bombs, the group kills one graboid, but a final one remains and he won't take the bait. At last, desperate for survival, Val takes the last pipe bomb and runs with it towards a cliff. At the cliff's edge, Val throws the final bomb and it doesn't hit the worm, but it makes the worm flee the sound and dig right through the cliff wall plummeting to its death below. The worms dead, the townspeople return to perfection and wonder where these creatures came from, and Val and Ronda kiss as credits roll. So coming back to this movie, what could I remember? I remembered townspeople on the roof, and I remembered a graboid, crashing through a cliff and plummeting to its depth. And that was all I remembered coming back to it. Have you only seen this once? Once in 1990. It's been 30 years.
3: Oh, okay. Because I've probably seen this like a dozen times. I, I knew the film. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm just like Arnie. My memory was, and I don't know if I'm borrowing this from another movie that they might have made, I thought Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward had escaped prison and we're on the lamb from the law, and that this would be a redemption story.
3: No, Kevin Bacon's never coming back to this franchise. Fred Ward will come back once.
1: No, no, I just mean another movie that they might have made where there were prisoners on the run, like, oh, brother, where art thou kind of vibe. Like, I for some reason, <laughs> I thought that they were bad guys that were going to get redemption and perfection. So it was a surprise to realize in the opening here, they're just handymen and kind of friends but bickering friends that can never agree on anything yeah they're like an
2: old married couple who's gonna cook breakfast for each other i can't tell if they're homeless because they
1: wake up in a truck yeah are they camping outside no we see their trailer very briefly when they decide to pack it up they're grabbing the tv and the vacuum cleaner
3: i guess they travel around just doing everything you know, from working out the garbage dump to septic tanks so they they just fall asleep wherever Perfection's not very populated. I'm just disgusted that
2: they use a used leftover toilet as their beer cooler.
3: Yes, that was disgusting.
1: And so I think we're supposed to read that the older one has ambition and the younger one is happy with his life. And his freedom. And the only thing that hits missing from Val's life is a love. That he's got this female ideal.
3: Yeah, Earl, played by Fred Ward, he's always got a plan. Doesn't quite know what day it is, but he's got a plan for whatever day it actually is. And he's always criticizing Val, Kevin Bacon's character. He never plans anything. He has a very specific list of what he looks for in a woman. We'll see all the pictures on the visor of his car. They're all blonde-haired women that he wants.
1: It's a surprise to me it doesn't end up being a... Love triangle when we meet Rhonda.
3: Yeah, that is how you go. But I, I guess Fred Ward's just so much older. Like, he's always just pushing Val to hook up with Rhonda.
1: You say that, but he just got that same year. He played Henry Miller, you know, author of those famous erotica books, uh, Tropic of Cancer and what have you. I mean, he was positioned as a sex symbol. Fred Ward was? Yes. And the way they introduce
2: Rhonda here is she's got the sunscreen on her nose. She looks nerdy. And immediately, Val has no interest, and Earl is. Earl starts flirting right here. What happens to Earl's interest in Rhonda is never explained. It just fades away.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I never got the sense that Earl was that much older than Val. They, I always thought they were contemporaries, They <laughs> like similar age. Oh, no, I always thought Earl was like the dad with all that salt and
2: pepper beard and everything. <laughs>
3: Well, it it did stick out this time that he does seem to have, I don't know if the fatherly role is quite the correct, but maybe the big brother, he's pushing Val to, yeah, get together with this. They they go looking for Rhonda because she's, what, the new grad student in town, and they always got to check out the new college student? Well, with a population of 14, anybody (laughs) new is
1: excitement. I mean, that's front page news if they had a newspaper.
3: If it was Ron and not Rhonda, I don't think they'd be that excited about seismology.
1: I agree with that. Or geography,
2: as Earl thinks it is.
1: And typically with Rhonda, you'd want to have her be more of the city person, or someone that is starkly contrasted with the locals. But I actually never feel the snooty... Scientists come from her. Like, she's pretty agreeable with everyone.
3: Not snooty, but she does, like, she's the one that thinks scientifically. Like, th- there's a great scene later on we talk about where they try to decide where the origins of these graboids are. Again, she's very scientific minded. She's the one always coming up with the plans, and then it's these two goofy guys that got to execute it.
1: I just mean culturally. You'd think that she would learn to appreciate or not underestimate rubes and locals. But beyond that, Having a scientist, even a grad student, in this movie
2: would imply that you'd have somebody here to give you answers, right? Somebody smarter than everyone else. She's here studying seismic activity. Why is she studying seismic activity? It could come out midway through the movie that she and her department knew about Graboids and were hunting for proof of Graboids or something like that. Instead, she's as ignorant as the rest of them when they
1: actually start showing up.
3: She'll say something like, this is the first time they've got these kind of readings since they've been out there for three years.
1: Yeah, she would have an older professor or something that is sending her out there using her as bait. You would feel like there would be someone from the scientific community that is exploiting the situation.
3: You really want that aliens twist, don't you? The Paul Reiser role.
1: I'm not campaigning for it. I'm expecting it because of cliché. That is the formula. And just to have an explanation,
2: movies seem to like to explain where the monsters came from, be it the scene in the opening of John Carpenter's The Thing where you see that spaceship coming to Earth. Or something to have a scientist here that goes, okay, we knew about these and they are radiation mutations due to the nuclear testing that was done in New Mexico. Something would be expected of this film,
1: especially if you have a scientist there at all. They never do, right? They will have a scene where they sit around a rock and speculate, but we never have any conclusion. Never. It's
2: They say all the possibilities, right? It's from outer space. It's a radioactive
1: mutation. Yeah, government created. I mean, I think in some ways that's sort of a Gen X joke, right? Like, you know, we know all these cliches. We've seen all these drive-in movies. Does it even matter? Pick one of them. It's, they're not going to be bothered with it. And so it gives it, I don't know, it, it feels a little snarkier than a movie that, yes, if it were Hollywood, they would definitely tell you these creatures came probably the makings of one of the characters that we're going to meet. Someone drilled something, someone did something, there's a mad scientist among them.
2: Exactly, you've got a scientist there! It seems unusual. I don't even know what most of these people do for a
1: living or if they do for a
3: living. I think they live off the government. (laughs) I think that's what they do, except the gummers.
1: There were definitely a few that, again, that's why I wanted to read that script about, like, what's Melvin's deal? There's like this, he's a teenager. He lived by himself out there? Is he an emancipated teen? Well, in the original script, which is called Beneath Perfection, It's mentioned, it's a line that I don't think appears in this movie, maybe it's a cut scene, but it's mentioned that his parents are always running off to Vegas to have wild weekends and they leave him alone. He's the latchkey kid. He is bored because no one is supervising him. That is not in any of the cutscenes on the disc either. So
2: yeah, I was trying to figure out if he was the doctor's kid. Because we're going to see that the doctor and his wife were killed. And I'm like, was he their kid? He doesn't seem too broken up about their death. I couldn't figure him out.
1: And you would think, again, in a movie like this, you would have a kid character that would be central. Like, you would think that they would just sell it to a kid audience... You would make that teenager Corey Feldman or somebody and make them just as important as Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. In 1989, they couldn't afford Feldman and Bacon. Yeah. No, again, I just mean... I'm never suggesting, <laughs> let me be clear, never hire Corey Feldman, but I can understand the idea of building a child star role out of this character because he's a prankster and he gets one up on the adults and that's just such a formula that worked for the 80s.
2: You also have a little Drew Barrymore-like girl hopping around on a pogo stick they could have exploited more.
1: Yeah, again, if you had gone for a kid audience, and I don't know why they wouldn't have. Again, Intended to be our. Yeah then you would definitely have played up those roles. And as I already mentioned, the market... I thought they were going to do something with the gun nuts versus the Vietnam store owner because they made a big deal about he's not Chinese, he's Vietnamese. And these are people that, you know, are survivalists and
3: military. They are arguing about the bullets when we see them first at this market.
1: But there's no tension. One thing that is kind of surprising and maybe nice about this is that, like, all these people pretty much get along with each other. Yeah, they play pranks on each other. Yeah, there might be a quip or two, but we don't have any hostility here these are happy people
3: this isn't night of the living dead where the drama is from the group not liking each other and the tension and and everything results from that this is this is a movie where everyone's pretty much going to get along and you know it's us versus giant 30 foot worms
1: even jaws i mean jaws had the whole political angle
3: yeah mayor versus the sheriff yeah they don't go there
2: yeah, at times this movie reminded me of Maximum Overdrive. Oh because you've got a bunch of people trapped together in the local store and they're surrounded and can't go outside or they're going to be killed. You can see it,
1: right? Well they're not abrasive in that way. You say maximum overdrive and that's like I literally visualize very long fingernails going down a chalkboard. Yeah. That movie <laughs> just hurts. To here... And I watch it for fun sometimes.
2: <laughs> I know it's bad. But here, the difference is... There you had the evil boss who would make Emilio work off the clock. And you had the bickering newlyweds with Yardley Smith screeching. Oh God. Here these people do get along. It's It was a little counterintuitive, but makes a lot of sense. A, if you have a town of 14 people, you can't get that angry at your neighbor. And B, when you're fighting for your life, arguing about your paycheck is probably pretty
3: dumb. Yeah, the the, the most upset they'll get is at Melvin for always doing his pranks.
1: I think that there's a little bit of... Frank Capra in Perfection. I actually think it is a perfect little town, but you may not think about it at first because we're seeing everything through the vantage point of guys covered in garbage who think that they need to leave in order to have a better life. And so it will be them constantly trying to get out of town and eventually realizing that maybe what they need is here. But as we're introduced
2: to this town, I am most excited of this entire cast as an adult To see Victor Wong as the (laughs) local store owner. Of course, Victor Wong,
1: we discussed him in The Golden Child. Whenever they needed a Chinese actor that was old, it was usually him, right? There's like three guys that they call in Hollywood. And so he did pop up a lot in the 80s. And what motivated me to read that script is what I'm going to say now. I like all these characters. I wish we had more time With them. Not, I don't want to elongate the movie. I don't want to make the focus off the fact that the main characters are Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, but it just seems like you have a rich cast that ultimately, yeah, he doesn't get to do too much before he's sucked underground.
3: Uh, He's still kind of fun, though, the way he'll buy that remnant of a tremor snake for $15 and then makes a huge profit off of it. Like He gets some fun little moments before his demise.
1: He gets a lot more than the guy who gets found in the electric tower. He gets a lot in the script. If you read the script, it was his septic tank that he sends... Val and Earl out with that sprays them. The thing that makes them realize we're getting out of here is when they're sucking up all of the waste from the trailer and it sprays them in the face. In the script, they made it overt that it was Chang whose hose they were using. And Chang was always buying things off of them for small money and then selling it for profit. So, they really had that tension going. For whatever reason, it's not here now. I'm guessing part of it might just be the way the actors
2: play it. But, yeah, he gets a lot more than our first kill. The guy we find in the tower. I was—I really wish they'd left in that opening scene. That would have introduced us to this character because it is just confusing that as they're trying to leave town, they're—they're they're sick of this. They find Edgar, the local drunk in this electrical gantry after days of being up there.
3: I mean, it's convenient. Earl's like, or maybe it was Val. I I could tell from his jacket that that's so-and-so and and let's go see if he needs some help. I mean, yeah, that's kind of inconvenient. I don't mind that we don't know who he is. A lot of times in slasher films, there's some opening kill and whatever. It's just, you need that opening kill.
1: I'm going to side with Arnie and say, uh, we should have started with Worm Attack. You want to grab your audience right away. They started with the comedy and I think that that ends up coloring the film. Like, this film will feel more comedy than it ever will horror.
3: I definitely agree, but I think that is just the aftertaste of, like, this first ten minutes, because it pretty much goes into horror mode. I don't find a lot of comedy once we're introduced to all the characters. But this, the reputation of this film is that it is horror comedy, even though I don't think it's that well balanced.
2: See, I, I think it never hits true horror and that's what makes it a horror comedy is this is never not lighthearted. even when people are being eaten the gore is such and the mood is such that i never feel true tension and that's what makes it a horror comedy to me
3: oh i think when that farmer gets it and that couple in their car i mean i i think there's some horrific moments again i thought they were pushing things for what passes for pg-13 at least today
1: Yeah, I mean, again, the genre of the horror comedy really came in vogue in the 80s. And, yeah, I feel like sometimes we would have R-rated ones like Return of the Living Dead. And sometimes we would have Ghostbusters. And I would say this is closer to Ghostbusters is all that I'm saying. I'd agree. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. All I'm saying is that they could and maybe should have leaned a little bit more into Splatter and Gore... But I don't know what that would have left them with with the rating. It sounds like, Arnie, you said that in post-production, they had these scenes and then just gutted them to to get it down to PG-13. And also, some of the horror scenes you're talking about, Jacob,
2: were filmed the way they were because they were running out of money, too. They, they scrambled at the end of this. Some of the scenes weren't filmed the way they wanted, and so they used what they had. But to me, it's really off-putting that our first death is a guy we've never seen who's in this gantry. Our second death, 15 minutes in, is another guy we hadn't seen who was in that cut opening, who's a random sheep herder that gets pulled underground. And then when we get the married couple getting killed, we don't know any of these people.
3: I love the way the the deaths are filmed like the way those sheep like you get some close up to the the sheep and, and their face like cuz you think the sheep are going to get it they're the ones panicking and running around and then no the farmer gets sucked down and then later on we'll see the sheep got it too but Okay, yeah, we haven't been introduced to these people. Again, I'm going by slasher rules. That's just how it works, usually. You get some opening kills. In slasher films, you usually have one
2: scene where you get to introduce to a character before they die. You rarely have people wander on screen for the very first time to be a kill.
1: Agreed with that. And uh, yeah, you can do it. Jaws, I'll keep going back to that one because that's the blueprint.
3: Okay, we didn't know anything about the horny teenage girl that jumped in the water skinny dipping. She just dies. That's exactly what I was
1: going to say, is that that opening one, she's just a girl, the girl, the first kill. But anyone else that we're going to want to see attacked, I feel like you do want to have a little history with them. Unless they're like the dog or something like, you know, something cute. But... I don't know. The way usually this thing is handled is you have an opening scene where all the main characters are at the fair or at church or some communal gathering where we can just meet them all really, really quick, get some shorthand. And then it feels a little more earned when we see them in their dressing.
2: Yeah. Here, I understand what they're doing. And I like the fact that we're seeing the worms and Getting some kills and things in here. I'm
1: for that. But we haven't seen the worms yet. Just want to point it out. We're seeing death. We have POV of the worms sometimes. Yeah, Sam Raimi cam for sure. And
2: because we'd never met these characters, did you think it was a possibility the worm was going to get Rhonda? Because we do see that attack.
3: Yeah, that's the first time we see the worms POV is with Rhonda. It's moving in on her, and the blind worm somehow, yeah, could see the rubble being pushed aside.
1: No way they were going to kill Rhonda. I did think that we would find out who the blonde was that Kevin Bacon's character was crushing on, and she would get it. I did think that he would have to choose between his ideal and the practical smart woman. I thought that would come into play, but no, did I think Rhonda was ever going to die? No way. It's kind of funny
2: that, you know, getting in her car is enough to stop what we'd later find out to be a giant worm.
3: Yeah, I mean, they are doing this build-up, so I guess, if you're like me in 1990, where my dad just took me to go see this movie that I knew nothing about, they are building this mystery, like, what's this thing under the ground, and then, you know, then we're going to learn, oh, it's just this little snake, and then we're going to learn there's more to it, and more and more. So I do feel like, that. yeah, they are playing it a mystery. I know, because I've seen this, and I think if you saw the advertising, you would know what's coming, but... The audience knows. Yes.
2: Apparently, there was some dispute about that internally, that the... Makers wanted to keep the fact that it was even a worm a secret, and that here at the beginning, until the POV, you might actually think it's a serial killer. They didn't want the worm shown in advertisement, and Universal's like, no, no, the selling point's the worm. You gotta show the worm.
1: (laughs) Kevin Bacon is second banana and I agree with them I actually think they're right about that You, in order to sell the spirit of this movie you need to understand killer worms that's again like killer clowns it's a laugh it's something to enjoy as uh, something that you know more than the people it will take them a long time I believe these handymen keeps implying it's a serial killer until the 20 minute mark they believe that someone is going around I don't know stabbing these people and then burying them
2: decapitating that one guy
3: it's not until the worm has one of its tentacle snake tongues like wrap around their axle and they just think the truck is stuck and they drive away and rip that tentacle off and and then they see it when they get back to walter's market
2: and they did have a cut scene where earlier you would see that val got the truck stuck in sand setting up when they think it's stuck in sand here and they're spinning the wheels.
3: Yeah, I did have a problem believing why they were stuck in the sand here. Like, no,
2: I didn't either. I'm just saying that they did have a scene to set this up. <laughs> At some point, the filmmakers thought they needed to set up Val was a bad driver.
3: No, no, no they need to set up Chekhov's vibrating icebox, which they do, like they call it out very early in the movie. They don't need to set up that Val gets stuck regularly in the sand.
1: No, if anything, the editor has got to be feeling the pressure of getting to those worms real soon. I mean, again, 20 minutes feels right, more or less, but you could have even shorned it by a couple minutes. I mean, I do feel like by starting the way that they did and inundating us with comedy, we're really hungry for it once we look in the undercarriage and see that creature wrapped around there. And my memory of this
2: was wrong. I had thought That that was a graboid and we would find out later on that there was like a mama graboid and that was the thing I remembered crashing through the wall. I didn't remember that what we're seeing there was like a tongue grabber thing. the tentacle
1: when is it actually labeled a graboid I hear Kevin Bacon say it late in the film Walter comes up with the name
2: yeah he's sitting around demanding they name it and everybody's like who cares about the name and finally Walter says we'll call it a graboid oh okay
3: which is something I never caught until this viewing I I guess with the now playing glasses on yeah I, I just always called them Tremors like that's the name of the movie that's what you call them Tremors but no they are graboids apparently
1: yeah and I know the new movies Shrieker's Island so I thought and they do kind of shriek so uh, yeah graboid doesn't grab me necessarily as a scary name but again just
3: call him a tremor like they don't need a weird name the film got it right i
1: like graboid you know it's a new
2: kind of monster a tremor is something graboid is a new word if you're going to have this new kind of beast it's a cute term to me you know it's very literal
3: what does it do
1: it grabs
3: I don't know. I don't even think this thing makes 15 million if it's called Graboids.
1: You know what? Which one would you sit down for a $3 photo with? I mean, with a Graboid baby. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of why Chang wants to name it. And again, he's, I love the fact that he's turning it into a roadside attraction already. And again, this is what I mean. Like, I love the comedy of this. I wish we had more time for these characters. I wish the balance were in the beginning that we had a lot more gore and these characters lived longer into the pictures that we could enjoy them as people.
2: Well, I kind of disagree with that. I think there's a lot of gore here in the beginning with the nameless people, and those who are still around when that tentacle is there stick around for quite a while to come. I was surprised how many survivors there were from this film, because I expected it to be three. I expected it to be Val, Earl, and Rhonda, and Bert. I know Michael Gross comes back endlessly, but I expected the rest to be Graboid food.
3: I am surprised that there's more that don't get it. Like, there is one Hispanic gentleman. I don't even know if he has a name. I'm sure he does if I paid attention to the credits. Miguel. Okay, Miguel. I don't think his name is ever said in this film, but he's gonna live to the end. I think only Nestor and Walter are gonna get it, but we do have this couple, like, right after they discover this tentacle, we do get to see, I guess you said he was a doctor, and his wife they're building a home out in perfection. And again, I don't know, maybe it takes me back to that original Superman movie. Seeing that car get sucked underneath the earth, just Like Lois Lane when she's getting covered in gravel, like that always terrifying to me.
1: The fun of it is, and it's a setup that doesn't feel fully earned until we have the main characters find the trailer later, is that they have this radio going. Again, it hasn't really been clearly established. We the audience know, but the characters don't understand the threat is underneath them. So the fact that like the car radio will still be playing under the ground that the generator the lights go out and they're like where's the generator like it's just up and gone it's lovely to watch them to discover that the threat is on firm ground what they think is rock solid beneath them is actually like they're in the water and jaws is swimming up at them
3: yeah i love the way the headlights you see them like just slowly moving totally vertical as the car sinks I think it's a great little effective scene.
1: It is. It's a lot of fun. There was one other kill that I assume they completely cut. There was one other character, a little old lady named Viola and her barky little ankle-biter dog.
2: Yeah, that was never filmed. It was cut before filming.
1: Yeah. She didn't do a lot, which is probably why you cut her. And again, elderly people getting up on roofs and doing stunts that could be hard on them. But she ends up perishing that her trailer gets knocked down while she's trying to pack. She's one of the early deaths. She knows some Something is coming, but she is trying to take too many things and that's what kills her.
2: One thing that's throwing me early on in this film, and I really thought this would come of something because they talk about it again and again and again, is that that tentacle stinks and then the graboids stink. They just keep talking about the smell and the foul smell of this beast never comes to anything
3: it's just because i don't think they're talking about it they're making jokes about it the smell is totally for humor if you're thinking that's going to play some way into the plot that they're going to smell it coming nope it's just to make a joke every time they get guts thrown on them
2: i really thought they'd do something like wipe themselves and goos so that the creature couldn't sense them or thought it was one of their own or that something would come up with the smell as often as it's brought up in the movie but no it's it's like that
1: was the only thing they could come up with to talk about
2: with these monsters
1: i'm with you or you could just use it like a john williams score or a fin in the water you know you just people like did you fart you start the scene as a comedy about people accusing who smelt it who dealt it But we, the audience, knows the bad smell means the monster's coming. These writers are young. I feel like they have an idea that's bigger than (laughs) maybe they fully realize. They wrote number five is alive, nice software. What am I expecting? (laughs) They have six more movies to exploit and expand upon these ideas. So I do not feel at the end of this movie like, yeah, it's exhausted as a premise. So, yeah, there's a lot more that they could do. They don't take full advantage of here. But they do
2: show us Val and Earl are going to be more heroic figures. I mean, their first thought is get the hell out of town... But once they realize there's a tentacle around their car, they're going to be the ones who are going to take the risk and try to go get help, ride some horses to the next town.
1: But they're still trying to get out of town. The whole movie is about we hate perfection and we want to get out of town. And the only reason why they don't is because there was this construction crew. That was a nice visual of like they had the jackhammer and this. all of a sudden they hit goo or something. It looks like a lake of blood and the guy gets dragged by it and causes a whole rock slide that again you just can't get out of town it becomes a comedy of errors about these these guys just can't catch a break
3: yeah but their their motivations are different when they get on those horses it's to try to go get help because all the phone lines are down now
1: sure but will they ever come back probably not oh their truck's still there loaded with their stuff of course they'll come (laughs) back once yeah maybe maybe so yeah they got to get that vacuum cleaner it's got parts they need those parts but yeah, what basically happens is they are riding off like heroes in a Western and then their horses, something that never has happened to John Wayne, their horses get eaten. Like just, this is where they know it's an underground threat. All of a sudden they're, they're pitched from their saddles and these horses are covered in tentacles. And then they see what has got to be the most delightful effect in the whole film. I just never get tired of it. It's like the gopher in Caddyshack. We see the dirt burrowing at them. They think, oh my God, it must be millions of them. Nope. It's just one. It's just one dune sandworm, and we realize that the graboid is indeed what you described, Arnie. The mama is is the thing. These aren't babies coming out of it. It's just been flicking its tongue, and now we've seen it in full.
3: How dare you, the gopher and cat? I don't like that movie, and... I guess this is still a puppet, just like that gopher, isn't it? But it looks so much better. I I love this design, like the beaks that they have, and the fact again, my question when I, I did finally get around to those sequels for this will they just go easy with CGI? I love that there's a physical because you couldn't do that in nineteen ninety. I guess you could, it would just look bad. But yeah, that it's it's a practical effect here. I love it.
1: And they very wisely, when they I mean they have these rigs that will kick dirt up and again, Spielbergian in the way that Spielberg and Jaws use the bow to signify it's coming they're running by those fences and and those things are getting pulled nice visual meters to tell us where this thing is i really enjoy the visualization when they don't have the money to pull off effects pov that really works for me when the camera becomes the creature and we just see the same cam. yeah
3: all the rocks being pushed to the side yeah
1: i agree with you that it's
2: a good visual and a good way to do it But while I'm watching the film, all I can think of is this is a really good way to do it when you have no money.
3: Yeah. But that's smart if not every film has half a billion dollars like Endgame. Like, yes, some films have to get creative. And I love seeing that, like, when they're able to pull that off. Of course it has no money, but I this is a great solution.
1: I mean, Spielberg talks about the shark didn't work. I mean, the robot shark Bruce always was giving them problems. They came up with the fin because they couldn't get the visuals that they were planning. So, again, I think... Yes, we will have one shot towards the end of the actually being underground and seeing a worm streak past. And they use that shot twice. Yeah. But, but for the most part, it's inference. And I think that they're, they're smart students of the Spielbergian philosophy. The audience will see it, even if you don't show it to them. If you film it right, we'll see the worm coming. And they get their first kill here.
2: We're going to find out there were four worms total. They'll take out the first one here because they're running. I don't know what they run into, but it's got a cement wall.
3: I don't know why there's a cement ravine wash in perfection. Like, it doesn't look like they got much infrastructure in that town. I don't know why concrete has been poured over this ravine.
1: Yeah. Again, you would normally have this as part of the backstory. Maybe the oil had been struck and these are oil pipes or the big railroads coming or, you know, this is where you weave in a subplot suddenly becomes important because it has laid out the thing here that can be used to kill the creature. And all we really need to understand is it was going very fast and it collided with solid concrete. And so it can't burrow through all substances. It has a limit and they have a method. They have an in on how to take on the other ones because Rhonda's going to show up. She's been reading those seismic readings and she can tell from the blips that there's three other ones out there. And one of them is going to trap them and strand them on this rock. Yeah, this is where most of the movie takes place. Is You're stranded on either a rock or a roof or
2: something. But once you hit about the 30-minute mark of this film, the rest of it is we're trapped and can't step on the ground.
1: <laughs> you know, my brother and I, when we got bored and used our imaginations to play in the house, this was the game, right? The Floor
3: is Made Out of Lava. The Floor is Lava is a huge hit on Netflix.
1: Now it's a show. I, I've just found out about this. But I mean, just, I mean, maybe other people didn't play this, but I assume they did. Everyone played
3: it, Stuart. Everyone. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> there's a creature. There's a monster. Don't you remember
2: my mother had red shag carpeting? It was definitely lava.
3: Yeah.
1: The, what excuse do we need to be climbing all over things? Rocks. Later, it'll be store shelves. Yeah, this is great fun. As just anyone that wants to get in the spirit of play and childhood, this is exactly what you'd want to do if you went out to the desert, is climb on a bunch of rocks and imagine like this was your salvation from sand creatures.
3: Yeah, this film, you know, we didn't get a chance to do it because of corona, but A Quiet Place. We'll get there at some point, but it felt like a, a distant eventually it would evolve into a quiet place but like the fact that you can't step on the ground it's vibrations right it's they try to say sound too but that's only because sound is vibrations that might penetrate the earth but yeah the fact that you got to stay still or you got to stay on rock that they can't lift up or you dig through you know it provides a fun gimmick for the film
1: definitely I, I like that as a premise and yeah you're right we'll get to quiet place I won't spoil my thoughts on that I do think in many ways that movie was more attuned to sound design than this movie is oh definitely but again, this is embryonic. These, all of these filmmakers are new. This is the director's first film. These screenwriters only have batteries not included and short circuit under their belt. Huge
3: improvement thus far. Though. Yeah, so they're,
1: <laughs> they're showing growth, but they're still evolving, right? So I'm, I cut them all the slack that I can and say, yeah, it's not everything I want it to be, but they get the gist of what this movie should feel like, what a fun monster movie from the 50s is, and have translated it well to 1990. Do they have the characters once they're on the rock? It's time to, again, this is the speculation scene. This is where Val starts to fall for Rhonda. And is any of that stuff working for you?
3: Again, I like when they discuss their different theories of where these worms came from, just because it reveals so much about the characters, you know, conspiracy-driven. Oh, it's aliens. Then we have the scientific one. But she even doubts herself. Like, she can't even think of a scientific reason for these worms to be out there. Why
1: haven't we found the fossils? Exactly. Yeah. So
3: even she's not totally, but she's always scientific-minded. But So I like those little revelations. I, I don't think of a lot of other great banter that they have on this rock. It, it basically comes down to, hey, let's pull Volt eventually. I
1: have a trick when when i can usually spot a a new director is when they don't know what else to do and they cut away and if the scenes are really really short it means that they didn't know how to work with the actor to do it all in one scene because typically that's how you want to do there's a lot of breaking up here like the fact that the night passes and i don't know why we have to do all of that they have a line where everyone needs to take a shit
3: Yes. Yeah, and th- that's where you cut. Then you have Val and Rhonda like sleeping next to each other. She's got his jacket. How did that happen? I guess they, that just happened at the night. We're never going to know about it. So they either didn't know
1: how to develop this relationship or they planned to cut away to supporting characters and give them storylines. But since nobody in town is to know the worms are coming and they are going to be the ones to warn it, there's nothing to cut to. They can't go back and do that.
3: I have to ask you then, Stuart, you you at least glanced through the script. Was there any more with Val and Rhonda? Like, it feels like this should be more of a love story going on, but no, not really until the very end where they kiss.
1: Again, I thought for sure, we've mentioned it, that Earl also was crushing on her early on. In fact, saw potential in her that Val did not. At what point did he step aside and say, okay, I'm going to encourage this between you two, uh, is something that you would want to show on The Rocks. Again, that would be the purpose of having a quote-unquote slow, quiet moment. Well, to just
2: not have to have this conversation the whole show, the ending's a reshoot because when they were doing tests, Val and Earl left town. And there was nothing between Val and Rhonda. And the audience was chanting, kiss her, kiss her. So they brought back the people so Kevin Bacon could kiss this woman and credits roll.
3: That's even more bizarre that they weren't going to pay that off at all. I do feel like Earl, he's kind of letting Val have to deal with Rhonda because it's so against his type and he's got that list and Earl's always trying to get Val to grow. So I feel like at some point it, it just becomes a prank to him. Like, let me see if I could get this guy to fall for this woman that's totally not his type.
1: I just would like to see the moment. I'm not telling them how to run their movie. This is the story they wanted to tell, but just show me. And I feel like coverage and those human moments are still new to this director, are still new to these writers. They're more excited about the worms. I get it. They're kids at a candy store. This is fun. I want to see worms and pole viling and all of that stuff. I getcha. I want that too. Nobody wants to see Jurassic Park and find out it's a drama for most of the movie. Like, we want to see the creatures attack. But I do think that a skillful filmmaker, if this had been Tim Burton or Sam Raimi at this point in their careers, would have seen something eccentric and fun in the interpersonal relationships.
2: The characters are downplayed here. The focus is really the worms. and. Even Kevin Bacon, I don't feel he stands out very much.
3: I feel like they stand out just enough. Is it great? No. Is it good enough? For me, it is. Where they all have enough personality where I'm going to enjoy the moments where there's not a big worm, at least.
2: Oh, yeah. I I think every character on screen is affable and likable. At no point is there a character, and I kind of thought it was going to be Chang, because he's screwing people out of money, and he's buying the tentacle and everything, and so, you know, that seems like a character that you could make despicable in a Gremlins-type movie, but no... Everybody here is pretty affable. I like seeing them on screen. There's nobody I'm wishing to die. There's just not a lot of three-dimensionality to these characters either.
1: And that's what I mean. It's the trade-off of focusing and making the whole rest of this movie is playing Lava. Getting up on roofs, grabbing her off the pogo stick. All of this stuff is really fun, but there's nothing else really going on. And because of that, it feels very light. It feels very airy.
3: Yeah, I'll agree with you here. Once it turns into the floor is lava, it's less fun for me. Okay, there's more action going on, but if these were characters either that I, I was more invested in or they just had more personality where I was having fun watching them, this stuff could have been more exciting. And Instead, it just feels, yeah, it feels average. They're doing what they need to and, it, and it's kind of exciting to see them, you know, hop from shelf to shelf and climbing a water tower and whatnot. I think this is where the point where... I don't know if the decision for the entire franchise, but at least for this movie,
1: the decision is made. If nobody else can do this... Give me some Reba and my and, and dad from Family <laughs> Ties, right? This is where they really come in to bloom as the survivalist gun nuts.
3: I'm shocked that you didn't remember this scene, Arnie, because this is the one that stood out to me. Is like this is a comedic scene, but yeah, the worm bursts through their bunker basement and they just start unloading all their guns on it.
2: You know what? I'm gonna give this movie I like almost all of its special effects. But one shot here in the basement, when they do a blue screen of Michael Gross with a puppet worm in front of him, you can see like an outline around him. He looks like a force ghost. <laughs>
1: I, You know, I, the special effects are as good as they need to be. I, I kind of appreciate that they're practical. And again, it's all about the dirt for me. I, li- I just like anytime you can show the burrowing, that's like... I'm good. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so when that thing bursts through, you're you're delighted. You get to see all that debris. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, the joke is Michael Gross played the hippie dad on Family Ties. and Now now he's the gun nut with Reba McIntyre. I don't know a whole lot about her. her she's a country singer, right? I, I do think she's great in this. Like, I wish this was a Reba McIntyre franchise based on these performances than the Michael Gross one.
2: This was her first film role, and she'd been talking to Universal Pictures. What do you have for me? What do you have for me? And Universal came to the director of this and is like, what about Reba? And he didn't want her. He's like, I don't I don't want a country singer here. But she read for the role and he thought she was really good. And so he cast her based on what she should have been cast on, which is a good audition and not just because she was Reba.
1: And who knows maybe she brought in some audience because she was very popular as a singer at this time. The box office knows, Stuart. She didn't bring in the audience. <laughs> I meant whatever people were coming were probably Reba fans. They give her the song at the end credits. You know what? This is the thing I remembered about the movie. I didn't remember much, but my memory was that I loved her and Michael Gross in the film. They were the movie to me. I kind of forget about Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon. I knew they were in it, but I was like, no, I feel like this is Reba McIntyre, like the new Madeline Kahn, right? She just totally takes over the picture. She's very good. The moment she is given a lot of fun.
3: I do feel like this scene though it does kind of steal the rest of the film like I, I feel like this is the scene people probably remember because it's just so over the top just again pulling out rifles and the machine guns and then elephant <laughs> guns and flare guns like and again it just goes on long enough where it overstays its welcome and becomes funny again
1: and wisely they ended up giving Reba her own sitcom like for seven years she had a Reba show was it any good you know what I it was made by Fox I actually handled that show I it was very family driven like it wasn't my kind of sitcom but I thought she was good yeah this is a fun scene though where they have that whole wall of guns I remembered you know
2: again it's been 30 years I remembered not liking this I remember not buying Michael Gross in the role because I was a Family Ties fanatic I had seen every episode and every rerun and some of the episodes in syndication and I remember thinking he didn't work here but My memory is wrong, he works perfectly here, the slicked back hair, the mustache, the hair dye, it makes him look different enough from Michael Keaton. And I think he and Reba have good chemistry on screen.
1: Very good. And and I like that they're not hateful. I think there might have been a temptation to like, again, the script is it's Vietnam all over again with the Vietnamese store clerk and the gun nut that probably was at not. You know, you could have gone that way. It would have been very easy to go with those sensibilities. But again, this perfection town is a sweet little town. All these people are very likable in the end.
3: I do have to ask though, Michael Gross, does he have some connection to Atlanta? Because yes, we're in perfection, Nevada. Once they go on the road, he's wearing this Atlanta Hawks hat and that thing's going to come back again. I can tell you that. Like, I don't know if that's his hometown, like why this character would all be for the Atlanta Hawks. Something to follow.
1: I got my eyes out on Atlanta there. I have no idea, but I would guess it does feel like an actor choice. I don't believe the director would care. You're like, what do you want to wear? Okay, whatever. That's fine. This probably was something that Michael Gross slipped in there for reasons. But we're pretty much, I mean, we could talk about the individual bits. I do like the fact that the worms are testing the foundation of all the different places.
3: Yeah, they're getting smarter, we're told.
1: Yeah, they, they feel smart enough. <laughs> they're smart sharks, right? This is not Jaws anymore. Deep Blue Sea. They're getting into that direction of, of being able to evade traps and know when they're being conned and, and all of that.
3: And again, what I, what I think this film does well, again, it's not great. It's not hard to do, but there's a lot of films that just do it bad and miss it like you have even with all these worms there's one that you could identify they're stumpy you always know that's the dangerous one that's the one where they rip that tentacle off with the truck axle and like they're always oh they're stumpy again they're stumpy doing that like it's a nice little visual you know it when that decapitated tentacle comes out and kevin bacon will call it a name like a smart thing to do it's not just all nameless worms you're able to personify one and it just makes you a little bit more invested
2: yeah i i didn't actually notice Which one was the one missing the tentacle?
1: I didn't always keep track of it, but sometimes I did. I think Jacob's right to cite. They did the best with what they could, given that most of the time you're not going to see the monsters anyway. They're under the ground, (laughs) and that's where they will stay. Yeah, very true. And
2: it's shocking to me, they actually go down pretty evenly throughout the film. One dies just running into the cement wall, not hard to kill, and Michael Gross and reberger are going to take out a second one, and it takes a lot of bullets, but he's dead just with bullets. That's going to leave only two. It's actually well written in that it feels like the tension is increasing, even though the number of worms is decreasing, because... Strangely, the one thing I find hard to believe in this script is, yeah, these worms are going to learn and become, as you said, Stuart, smart shark. It's really, really hard for me to buy that.
3: I like it, though. I mean, they're going to dig out a foundation. Again, they're not splitting the atom here. They're like, we'll just sink the whole building and make them fall
1: down. Here's where they fail in that, like, we, we never find out why. We never find, because we never find out an origin. Because they decide to punt that football, and I'm assuming in the weeks ahead, we're We're going to have a lot more about their origin. That's got to be what six more movies are going to give us. But here, because they did not conceive fully what these creatures were, it begs the question of why, if you want to sit and think about it.
3: Yeah, maybe if you want to write some killer fanfic. I mean, Gremlins, we don't know where Mogwais come from. How would that work in the wild? When, when it rains, they live in a tropical place where it rains and they just multiply everywhere. Like,
1: oh, we did that, though. We went after that. I mean, don't bring up that movie. I was terribly disappointed in it. I wanted to love that movie and I did
3: not. <laughs> okay. See, I, didn't, I don't need to know where Mogwais come from. Tremors. Again, because this is such a B movie, I'm not worried about any of that other stuff. Once we learned where the xenomorph came from, were any of us happy?
2: You know, I'm not worried about it here. By the time we get to parts four, five, six, and seven, I think I'm going to need a little bit of warm backstory.
1: Oh, I'm sure it's coming. And again, if you're honoring the tradition of a B-movie, there is always the sanctimonious scientist. Again, Rhonda is here to monologue that our radiation or toxic waste or oil drilling, fracking wasn't a thing yet, so they couldn't do that. But something we were doing to ourselves. There's always a sermonizing. They always try to take these silly movies and then try to put some weight on it and some pretension about mankind's failure. And they didn't bake that into this cake. For whatever reason, they just maybe forgot, is the way it feels like to me. They're having so much fun running around. Now we're here at the climax with Kevin Bacon, punching it out with Fred Ward about who's going to be the one to go grab the bulldozer and ride nine miles an hour up the hill like they can escape with everyone riding in the hitch behind. There just wasn't any place to build any characters, either humans or worms. And I do like the
2: moment. Again, good tension as you've got this riding lawnmower
1: tractor going in one direction, Kevin Bacon running in the other. Again, I would hire these guys in a second for a big action movie. I am surprised this director is going to go from here to City Slickers and Heart and Souls and Speechless. Like, he is going to go in the romantic comedy and comedy genre, but I would think that what's being really showcased here are people that know how to place the camera and how to exploit a simple premise really well.
3: Yeah, you get moments like where Val is running, he's trying to get to that tractor trailer and he's got to stop and then the worm is uh, feeling around with its tentacle and he's got to lift his leg. I mean, just that kind of stuff is fun to see in this type of movie where the monster can't see but it's feeling around and it's getting close and, and then again, everyone in the town is going to have to make vibrations and noise to draw it away, but it's nice that they remember to have that little scene like that in here like they don't always remember to do that
2: and i like some of the camera work in here too like when you get that zoom on kevin bacon that's kind of like the worm cam but not entirely because it's too high above ground and you just get him looking all scared
1: yeah kevin bacon is a good comedic actor i tend to find that that's where i want to see him not that he can't do dramatic work but for whatever reason i think a movie that came out around the same time it was about film school The Big Picture, he was the star of that. It was a movie I loved right when I was considering going to film school. The times that I think about liking Kevin Bacon, it wasn't the Footlooses. It wasn't the River Wild. It was when he got to be goofy and larger than life. He could have been Bruce Campbell. He could have been Kevin Klein. He doesn't have the looks for
2: it would be the thing I'd say. He's, he has an odd look that I think he has finally found a use for in the 21st century after a period in the 90s of not being sure.
1: I agree with you. I think they sold him as a leading, you know, but he was hunky in 1985 dancing around to Kenny Loggins. But really outside of that venue, I don't think I don't think that he had the sex appeal to sell the movies and the parts that he was offered for the next decade. But here, again, what I want to do is compliment. I think he's carrying this movie very well, and the movie is more and more giving him all of the heroics. It is kind of surprising that he's kind of doing everything by the end of it. Fred Ward has been marginalized. I mean, I actually think, did Kevin Bacon's agent get, like, insist, no, he will do all that is good. Like, and he will get the girl, too. I feel like, in the end, Earl almost is... You should have eaten him because he just doesn't do anything.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you you think it's going to be a a buddy comedy horror type thing, but it's mostly a Kevin Bacon show.
1: Definitely, by the end. But he is
2: top build. He was from the beginning. He was the bigger star, and he is
3: younger. And again, me in 1990, I want to see Kevin Bacon. I don't know who Fred Ward is. I still don't know who Fred Ward is. I want to see Bacon save the day.
1: Yes, and Michael Gross. I mean, they all kind of come together, the three of them, as we get to this climax. Obviously, we know that uh it's too easy. It's cheating to be like, oh, the bulldozer will take us away. No, no, no. That needs to tip over. The worms figure out how to create a fault line or something. They're stranded on rocks again. And Michael Gross, thankfully, thought enough to make some homemade bombs before he hopped in there. They go fishing. It's Fred Ward's idea and Michael Gross's bombs that gets one of these Graboids to swallow a bomb on a
2: lasso. And this is a moment that I... Felt was also it could have been built up because Fred Ward is going to get this kill here all by himself, but Val is like, "You're not gonna try that lasso thing, are you?" Well, we'd never seen him try to lasso before. Can he do it? Can he not do it? We don't know, but he seems pretty good with it when he does it here.
1: Yeah, I wonder if there were cutscenes or plan things and in the beginning they could have been ranchers. The fact that they're handyman feels weird. They probably should have been cowboys, and that
2: takes care of one of them. But when Val tries to repeat it. They've learned too much. And how are you going
3: to get the last one? You've got,
2: what, seven or nine people on this rock?
3: Yeah, that last one conveniently spits that lighted stick of dynamite into the pile of sticks of dynamite that Michael Gross's character had built. Except one, I guess Kevin Bacon was holding one. So all the rest blow up except the one Kevin Bacon has. And
1: so here's the character moment, if there is one in this film, is this the whole film Kevin Bacon has advocated, don't have a plan drifting through life. Fred Ward's the one with the plan. But he's the one that comes up with the idea, if you blow up behind the worm, it makes it go really fast. We can make it stampede. Right. You know, they were building a fence at the beginning of the movie because, yeah, if cattle get scared, they'll run right over a cliff. He knows this about the animals. So he's counting on the worms doing the same thing. I don't know that that was very
2: clear when I was watching this. I thought he really was trying to lure the worm away and blow it up. And that it was just last minute inspiration to have it dive
1: off the cliff.
3: No, they showed us earlier when they threw those sticks of dynamite, it would scare the worms and they go crawling away really fast.
1: Yeah. And they again, there was that story they told in the beginning about being in a stampede. And to me, this was Earl's moment. If he was in a stampede before, it should have been his idea to come up with this. And again, if they were cowboys and we had seen them lasso a few livestock and seen how they handled animals and and knew this about animal behavior, you know, maybe they didn't have the money or maybe they didn't care and they didn't think about it. These things would have nuanced the movie to be more satisfying, but it's still very satisfying to watch a worm burst through a cliff face and splat in a big orange way.
2: Yeah. Can you fly, Mother Humper?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good enough. Again, I like—I don't know how good the blob is either. I mean, these driving in movies that they're trying to emulate, they're just as good as. Then it's pretty much over. Again, they're putting tires on their truck. They're finally getting out of town, talking about getting in People Magazine or maybe even National Geographic. Right. But there's going to be something that keeps... Kevin Bacon there now. I Presumably this relationship, which again, I believe you now that you say that this is something that came up because of test audiences, it doesn't feel totally earned.
3: No, it's just out of nowhere. (laughs) I mean, even when we, we totally skipped over, but I feel like the movie does this on purpose. It finds a reason for Rhonda to have to take her pants off and run around in her underwear for a little bit. And like, there's no quips or anything from Val. Like it's all played like an action scene.
2: And I don't know that that store would be the one that would
1: have women's jeans in her size (laughs) or any size.
3: And a pair of tennis shoes.
1: It's the only marketplace in town, so probably it has something of everything. But limited options, limited choice, I would guess. Not as good as Kmart.
2: Well, is this movie as good as Kmart? (laughs) Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Tremors? Jacob
3: this movie's way better than Kmart or any blue light special you could get at Kmart. I don't even know if Kmart exists anywhere. It doesn't that out here in Southern California. I don't know where any are. But Tremors is still around Like, because we're building up to part seven. But no, this is a film. Again, I've seen this one probably around a dozen times just over the years. If it's on, like it's a movie that goes by easy. Is it challenging? No. Are there interesting characters? Well, they're not interesting, but I'm okay with them being B-movie characters. They have enough personality for me. The first 10 minutes where you get a lot of banter, I'm not bored, I'm into it, and all their little antics that are going on and meeting all the different townies. Like, this is not great stuff, but for what it is, yeah, it's pretty good. Like, it's a good, solid B monster movie, and I tend to enjoy those, especially when they rely on practical effects, and I love the practical effects in this film. Whenever, like, a giant worm puppet comes out of the ground, it's great. I'm, I'm having fun. Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre, they're a lot of fun here. Not major characters, but they do have a lot of fun scenes. So again, just, just enough spice with these characters where, again, they're not deep. They're not three-dimensional, but I enjoy being around them. I like the goofy premise of giant worms coming around. I think this movie goes down very easily. It's it's an entertaining B movie flick, whether you see it at the drive in or, or the rental store or wherever, Netflix now. I guess it's off of Netflix, but it was on there for a long time. But yeah, I think Tremors is a great film. Recommend. Stuart.
1: You know another series that I don't know if they're still asking for it, but for a while people were shouting, You really need to do it. Sharknado, Sharknado, Sharknado. No. You know what? Sci-Fi Channel, every time they make one of these things, you hope it's as good as Tremors. Like, this is the model. This is the thing they should be aspiring to. You're making really fun junk. And it's, it's hard to do. As Sharknado proves, not everyone has the gifts of being able to work the horror comedy in equal success. And most of the time, things like this end up just kind of being stupid and cheap and a one-joke premise that runs out of gas really quick. Like Usually within 10-15 minutes, you're changing the channel. Tremors is good start to finish. And it's in part because you can feel the passion of these young filmmakers. If you want to play Lava, their game. And I really did. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I could quibble, and I have. I do feel like I wanted to see a little bit more of the townspeople. You had a Twin Peaks veteran in there as the single mom. We didn't even bring her up. But she was Mindy's mom, the potter. Who was she in Twin Peaks? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, Bobby's mother. Oh. There were people there that uh, you had that could have done something that would have been fun characters they stayed focused on the worms and the action and that was probably the right instinct maybe a different director more skilled with actors would have gotten more out of the subtext the subplot had more fun quibble 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 but in the end ron underwood is good enough for this i mean he understands the recipe he's got all the right ingredients to make it flavorful Eat it up. It's good. If you like this kind of stuff, it's a very solid recommend. Three recommends. You know, it is what it is.
3: It's
2: a fun film that's just all around well done. The actors are affable. Is there a standout? Is this a star-making role? Is this going to thrust Kevin Bacon? back into the spotlight and bring Sizzle back to his career? No.
1: Reba, Reba's the standout. She got a sitcom out of this. I don't know that she got a sitcom out of this. The sitcom came several years later. Like a decade. But you know (laughs)
2: what I'm saying. She surprised everybody. And the special effects are good enough. I mean, I actually really like when we see the worms and all the practical effects and the puppet work. There's one shot I don't like, and a lot of the hide the worm is... A budgetary thing, but when you see that worm, it works
1: really well. And it doesn't rip off Dune that badly. <laughs> no, no. I, again, Dune wouldn't even have been something they would have been trying to do, because that you want to talk about bombs. Oh, boy. Yeah, but when I think about desert worms,
2: I think about Dune.
1: But sure. I think they
2: differentiated
1: it here, especially when you got, like, thumping to bring the worms. Well, they didn't look like big penises. That would have been a way to go with this movie. They could have made it all <laughs> sexual innuendo. And other than Kevin Bacon pissing off the cliff at the beginning of the movie, they really didn't play with phallic
3: imagery. I mean, Jamie Kennedy is going to show up in this franchise, so don't count out dick jokes. Okay.
2: Apparently, the effects guys were sending in early sketches for the worm. Did they get H.R. Giger to (laughs) commission him to draw some up? (laughs) They got a note that every time they'd fax in a new drawing, all of the office girls would stand around and giggle. Because they'd drawn what they considered to be a shield around the head and all the women were calling it the foreskin. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so they got rid of that. Someone figured
2: it out and they didn't put it on screen. That's all that matters. But I like this film. I wasn't sure coming back that I would, that I would hold up, that I could roll with a 30-year-old low-budget B-film. PG-13 horror. Yeah, yeah. But I can, and I even laugh at the bad overdubbing of lines like Mother Humper, you know? It works better than what they were doing in the PG-13 diehards. So yeah, this is a recommend. It was a good movie and a fun time. Give it a rental. Or stream it, whatever. I don't think it's
1: streaming anymore. It was on Netflix. And being at home feels right. Like, there are some movies you are like, no, that it should have been a big hit on the big screen. It's a big screen event. Nah. So you should love the next seven films.
3: Yeah. Because you'll be at <laughs> home. For all, that's the only way you'll be able to see them. I'm
1: actually feeling better about the fact that they're all direct-to-video because I do feel like, yeah, that's the ambition level that we're hitting.
3: It, it gives you a bar to measure them by. Like, Yeah,
1: you don't want to put this out of proportion. This is no classic. This is no Psycho, which, by the way, we're still giving out 60th anniversary digital downloads of the Alfred Hitchcock classic. Yeah, it's great for Halloween. It's its 60th anniversary, which
2: seems like a great time to rewatch it and then go listen to our Psycho
1: Retrospective series, which is available through Podbean. It has more than one good movie. You might be surprised. Like Trimmers, I'm only predicting to like the first one. And then as I went through that series, there were other winners.
2: The whole journey is worth it. If you subscribe to our In Focus newsletter, you will be entered to get a digital download of Psycho. You have until September 18th to sign up for our newsletter. Head to our website. At the top is a link that says subscribe. So thank you for listening. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me for Tremors. And thanks for listening to Now Playing, the podcast Hotter Than a 50 Cal on Full Auto.
0: We killed it. We killed it.
3: Fuck you! <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. Now, this is low. We have got to set our sights a little bit higher. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Nobody handles garbage better than we do. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. See, we plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Let's be honest, you've got a lot of red in your ledger. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Is there some higher force at work here? I mean are we asking too much of life you can donate to the show and as our thank you receive bonus podcasts i would venture
2: that it matters not how you spend your money but how you spend your life
0: over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the now playing Podbean page including alien night of the living dead jurassic park ghostbusters indiana jones lord of the rings psycho troll and more Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. I mean, we could make some real money on this thing. We could get in People magazine. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. We don't have much of a budget, you know. It's not a high priority in Washington. Okay. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. You have asked for some uh, unusual things. Find the details on our website. I bet you made a fortune off this. You know, somebody did. Sure wasn't me. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Lead, follow, or get out of my way. I'll lead. It's not an option. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage.
1: Last check. How many Twitter followers did you have, huh?
0: Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho.
2: You're underachieving big time, my man. You should be
1: a global brand. Come on.
0: Associate produced by Jason Latham.
1: There he is. Huh? The man, the myth, the
0: legend. Now playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. Doing what I can with what I got. Now playing credits read by Brock. You know, I just bet that you could charm a cow right out of her calf with those fancy words. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I feel I've not been privy to critical, most needful information. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. But I do not dwell on that over which I have no control. (sighs) That's great. I have to do all the dwelling. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended.
3: You've been flipping off the feds longer than Wesley Snipes.
0: It's got to be a record now playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vingonza media incorporated now playing is a Vingonza media production copyright 2020 and no part of this show may be reproduced repurposed or redistributed without the written permission of Vingonza media incorporated all rights reserved your little jungle boat ride is over mister time to fish or cut bait
1: I would say this is closer to Ghostbusters, is all that I'm saying. I'd agree. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. One is better than the other. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can, you can be in different moods, right? I don't want to play think he's favorites.
3: talking about how the, the balance of horror and comedy, not Ghostbusters okay. versus Tremors.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because
3: obviously Ghostbusters is better. I mean, I I don't know. I, sometimes I obviously, want... Obviously, Stuart, obviously. <laughs> sometimes obviously. I want <laughs>
1: Return of the Living Dead. Oh, you know? okay,
3: you're you're comparing it to Return of the Living Dead. Ghostbusters is still better, though. <laughs> Agreed. I get it, though. I, I could go for both of those
0: films. <laughs>